Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to join me as I turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This will be our first Sunday in chapter 2. It took us... uh, Oh, about eight weeks to get through chapter one. That puts us on pace to complete the entire book in, in a year, which is, uh, I think, a worthy goal, though we're not in a hurry. Uh, some of you have joined the study a little late. I um, encourage you to go back and review the messages on our website. They are there for your uh, listening uh, pleasure. Ephesians chapter one tells us that the letter was written by Paul, and it was directed to believers in and around the city of Ephesus. We believe it to be an encyclical, which is a letter meant to be distributed to various churches in a region and uh, read to all of them. Theologians sometimes call Ephesians, you recall, the treasure house of the New Testament because it's here in Ephesians where Paul lays out uh, the bounty, the blessings that are ours because he says we are in Christ. That little prepositional phrase, in Christ, is repeated over and over again in Ephesians. Every time it is, it reminds us of our mystical union. The the fact that uh, because we are saved, we are now immersed, baptized into Christ. Um, Everything that we have is a gift from Him. We have a fundamentally new relationship with our Creator because we are in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 4, we see the role of God the Father in bringing about His eternal plan of redemption. Verse 4 tells us that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted into his family, that we would be conformed to the image of his dear son. Verse 7 shows us the role of the son in that plan, and that, of course, is that he purchased our freedom. We call that our redemption. To redeem means to purchase one out of slavery and to set him free. He did this through his substitutionary atonement on the cross. And then it's the work of the Holy Spirit, we saw in verse 13, to seal us in Him so that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. That we will ultimately see the consummation of our salvation and glory in heaven. Verses 15 through 23, Paul pauses for the first time, it will not be the last time, in these six chapters to pray. And he prays for the believers to whom he is writing. He prays very specifically some deep spiritual prayers. He prays that they would begin to comprehend these blessings that are available to them, the hope of the salvation that is within them. And ultimately, as we saw last week, the power that is working on their behalf. It's the same power, he says, that caused Jesus to come forth from the tomb. And as we're thinking about that incredible power as we prepare our hearts for Easter in a couple of weeks, Beginning in chapter 2, Paul directs us and our attention to tell us that the same power that raised Jesus physically raised us spiritually from the dead. So let's read the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Then we'll come back and take about three or four verses for the next three weeks and and unpack these wonderful truths. Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing the study of his word. I said that Paul is showing that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has given us spiritual life. Look what he starts with. He says, and, that is in addition to what he's just said in the previous verses. And that is that God brought forth Christ from the grave. He says, and you, I could add, also were dead in your trespasses and sins. And we're going to see over the next few weeks the past, the present, and the future of our salvation. And today we're going to look at the past. Now we're told not to dwell on the past too long, right? Except for the fact that we know that if we don't learn from the past, we are destined to repeat it. But not so much when we're believers. Because when we think about our past as believers, it is for the purpose of giving God glory. Because we know we're never going to return to that condition because he has set our, his seal upon us. You say, well, wait a second, doesn't Paul say forgetting those things that lie behind? He does. But what he's talking about in that particular verse is those achievements. He says, I'm not going to dwell on past achievements. I'm going to keep pursuing sanctification until I come to that state of glorification. I think Paul constantly was looking back at who he was before he was saved. I think it's what drove him, what's motivated him. I think every time he closed his eyes at night, he remembered that he was the one who held the coats of those men who stoned that good man Stephen to death. And that's why he always referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Never forget where you came from. Never forget that we were in the same spiritual condition as this lost world that we see all around us. And that is the point that Paul is making. So this morning, the title of the message is Dead Man Walking. About 20 years ago, there, there was a movie that, that came out by that title, and it was set in the prison system in Louisiana on death row. And if you remember from that movie, it sort of added to our, our culture's consciousness that every time one of those prisoners on death row was moved from one part of the prison to the other, the guards would yell out to one another, dead man walking. That is to say, this man's on death row, he is guilty, he has been sentenced to death, and so he is as good as dead. But Paul doesn't say that we were as good as dead. He says we what? We're dead. There's a very literal sense that we need to, to take this. Now, obviously, he's not talking about physical death, and that's why the title of the sermon is, is The Walking Dead. And you can relate to this because probably like no other time in our country's history, we seem to be obsessed with the living dead. I, I'm told that the most popular television show on TV is about zombies. And there's movies seemingly every month or two coming out uh, along this theme. And it's grotesque. And yet that is the very image that Paul is eliciting here. This is what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Now we know that's an oxymoron because dead men don't walk. But he's speaking of two different spheres of our lives. 
Physically, we're taking nourishment, we're breathing, we can put our finger to our pulse and know that our heart is beating. We can say we're alive, but Paul says physically you're alive, but spiritually you were dead. You were a dead man or a dead woman walking. Well, there's three things that I wanna see, and we're just gonna cover the first three verses of chapter two this morning. Number one is we were dead in sin. Secondly, we were walking in worldliness. And thirdly, we were led by lust. Now you'll note that he uses the past tense verb. He says, you were dead. He's writing to Christians. He's reminding them of who they were before God intervened and saved them. Now he uses two words here. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. One of those words, harmardia, means to fall short. It means to to miss the mark. We we take this from Romans 3.23 that I often quote, that all of us are sinners and we fall short of God's glory. The bullseye, in other words, we don't make it there and, and, and none of us do. And the other word means to slip and to fall past. But there are really two ways of describing the, the same thing. And if you ask a child, what is sin? Uh, they probably won't try to define sin. They will simply give you some examples of sin. If they're biblically literate, they'll go to Exodus 20 and they'll remember the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie or steal and, and have envy in your heart. And so uh, they'll give those as examples. And those are examples of sin. In the Bible, we see two broad categories of sin. There's sins of commission. That is when you do something you should not. And there's sins of omission, when you fail to do something you should. And truthfully, what Paul is saying here is that our greatest sin is the sin of omission, that we have failed to reach the mark. That is, we do not and did not give God glory with our lives. What is the purpose that God created everything, including human beings, is to give Him glory, right? And when we're dead in sins, we are not giving Him glory. And let me just remind you, lest you forget, we do not... We are not sinners because we sin, okay? We're not sinners because we lie and cheat and steal. We lie and cheat and steal because we're sinners. (laughs) That is our nature. We are born to it. And so Paul says in a very real sense, we are all born spiritually dead. Now, Now here's the great paradox. Many of the people who are spiritually dead believe that they're most alive. In fact, they, they caution the rest of us not to waste our life. After all, the philosophy of the world is you only live once. You better squeeze as much enjoyment out of it as you can. Live life to the fullest. That's what the beer companies tell us, right? Go for the gusto. And we're, we're shown these images of young people having the time of their lives. And yet the Bible says they're dead while they live. We were dead in sin. Let us never forget it. Now, the second thing he says here is that we were walking in worldliness. Verse two, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Now, this term walk is pretty much exclusive anymore to the church. In the secular world, people don't ask you, how's your walk going unless you've had some physical injury. But in the church, when we ask one another, how's your walk? We know what we mean. That is, are you making progress in sanctification? So your walk is the way you order your life. That is, are you reading your Bible regularly? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you leading your family as you should to love the things of God? 
But Paul says before we were saved, when we were dead spiritually, our walk, our everyday course of life was according to the course of this world. A course is a, a track that's been laid out. And so we walked in the same direction, in other words, as the rest of the world did. And by the way, it's not towards heaven, is it? And Jesus described these two paths that people are on. He says, you're either on the path that is narrow and straight that is entered to by a small gate, or you're on that four lane superhighway that the vast majority of people are on, and that one leads to hell and destruction. And few there be that find the path that, that leads to heaven. And he says, when we were dead in sins, we were on that broad path along with everyone else. And we were walking according to the course of this world. I take that to mean according to this world's philosophy and overarching system. Now, now do an exercise with me this morning and think about our culture and the direction and the path that it is on. What are some things that we can say are almost universally true about those who are outside of the faith? What do they value? What do they promote? And I just wrote down a few of them. Uh, number one, I think we would all agree that we live in a hyper-sexualized culture, right? That we, we can't even sell children's cereal without having something uh, sensual attached to it. You can't drive down 1709 without seeing billboards that elicit sexual, sexuality. And, and so I think that is, is something that is true universally. It's one of the great weapons that Satan has at, at his disposal. Now we know that, that sex is good when it's uh, in the confines of holy matrimony. God gives it to us as a wonderful gift, but Satan of course corrupts it. And it has become, I think, the, the most telling sign of the course and the direction of this wicked culture. Something else that we see that is a prevailing wind in our culture is materialism. The idea that he who dies with the most toys wins, right? And it's part and parcel to the other philosophies. It really harkens back to the, the old Greek philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. The clock is ticking. There's nothing after this life, they would say. And so squeeze as much pleasure as you can. And one of the ways you squeeze pleasure is by the accumulation of toys, of, of technology, of cars, of boats, of houses, of land. All of that, though, is under the overarching philosophy of secular humanism. The idea is that there is no God and that every man is his own God, which makes every man the arbiter of good and evil, right? And so it's good if I say it's good and it's evil if I say it's evil. And I'm not going to say anything is evil because that would be the ultimate sin, right? And we see, I think very clearly, that those philosophies run directly against the grain of the biblical interpretation of the Christian worldview. You ever wonder why you feel so out of place in this culture? Because you are. That's what we studied in 1 Peter, right? We don't belong here. We're not citizens here. The God of this age is Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. And Paul is saying that before we were born again, we were headed in the same direction, along the same path, along the same course, pulled along by the same urges and philosophies as the rest of the world. So I think that we can infer from that 
that we're not to, to look at what's going on in the culture and roll our eyes and say, I can't believe those people. <laughs> That's what we do, though, isn't it? Sometimes we expect lost people to act like saved people. Now, we have every right and should expect of one another that people claiming to be children of God act like children of God. But we never should be shocked when children of Satan act like children of Satan. Children of Satan are going to walk in worldliness according to the systems and the overarching philosophies of the culture that they live in. That's why your neighbors behave the way they do. It's why they order their lives the way they do. It's why they spend the money the way they do. It's because they are walking in worldliness. Now the third point we see here is that we, before we were saved, were led by lust. Led by lust. Let's read on. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. And so theologians tell us that there, there's three basic enemies that we have in the world as Christians. That's the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? So we've covered the first one already. The world is that overarching system that we live in. The second one he mentions here is the devil. By the way, I believe in the reality of Satan, don't you? He's not a metaphor, he's not a myth. Uh, he's a real entity, he's a created entity, which means he's not God, neither is he equal with God. We find in the book of Job that Satan has to ask God permission to do those things to Job. And we know from the book of Revelation that Satan's end is certain cast along with his demons eternally into the lake of fire. But for this time, the scripture refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. That is, when you look at the direction of the culture and you wonder where does this all come from, rest assured it's being driven by Satan and satanic forces. If you'll turn over a few pages to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and I don't want to give away the ending, We'll come to this later on in the year, but, but just to remind us, Ephesians 6, 12, Paul's describing the struggle that we're in in this culture. He says, we struggle, your version may say we wrestle, we fight, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so we might be tempted to look at the world and, and blame it on some political party or on some national or local leader or some organization that's trying to usurp and undermine what we think is the right direction. But the truth is it goes much farther than that. That, that those philosophies emanate from Satan. And Satan has under his control organizations and people and yes, demon powers. And we are living in a world in which Satan is the prince of the power of the air. But let's be very careful here. Because the temptation is to blame everything we do on Satan. And you remember that Satan is not God, so which means he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. He's limited in his, his scope. And it's very unlikely that every time you're tempted, it's Satan tempting you directly. What is more likely the case is that third enemy we face, that is our own flesh. And Paul just 
describes this in terms of our own lust. Look at verse three, it says, among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Lust are those uh, illicit desires that drive us. We generally think of, of sexual lust, but there are other kinds of lust, lust for power, lust for fame, um, and, and Paul is quick to say it's not just the external. Because remember, Paul was of that group of Hebrews called Pharisees. The Pharisees were those who worked very hard to give the appearance of personal holiness. And they would go out of their way so that everyone would think uh, that they were very godly people. They ran into a problem though when Jesus came on the scene because he's God in the flesh. And he was not limited by what he could see, hear, taste, and touch. He is and was omniscient. He knew their very heart. And so he's looked into their heart and he said, you men are like whitewashed tombs. In the spring of the year, they used to go out to the family grave sites. And you know, in the Middle East, they did not dig six feet under. They would find a cave or they would hew out some stone from a cliff and they would roll a rock over that. And then they would paint that rock white as a warning sign because you know that under Hebrew law, to come in contact with a dead body made one ceremonially unclean. And so when you saw one of these whited sepulchers, you stayed away, but it gave the appearance of, of beauty. You know that anything that's clean and has a fresh coat of paint on it looks wonderful. Every time I think I need to trade in, get a new car, I go take it through the car wash. And it drives so much better, doesn't it? Because it's clean. Well, the truth is nothing's changed about the internal workings of that car. It just gives the appearance of newness. Well, that's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. You look good on the outside. You're, you're impressing your peers, but I know your heart. Inside, you're full of rottenness and decay, just as those tombs are, are full of dead men's bones. And Paul says he was like that. Notice the terminology he uses. Among them we too, what's the next word? All. All. He's not saying this was the condition of the worst kinds of people. He says this is a condition of everybody. And sometimes we, we like to compare ourselves to the worst in society and say, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly like that guy. And that's the truth. Not everyone takes their depravity to the logical conclusion. But all of us are in the same condition. Paul calls us here the children of wrath. Now you think about that. In that culture, they didn't use a lot of adjectives. They would uh, use nouns. And so if someone had a particular bent or attitude or disposition, you would say they're a son of this or that. You remember Jesus' cousins, James and John. They, they had a, a quick temper and they were always uh, on the high strung end emotionally. And so Jesus gave them the name sons of thunder, right? They're always causing turmoil everywhere they went. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are children of the devil. You know why he called them children of the devil? Because they were acting like the devil. People that act like the devil are, are children of the devil. And so when he says that when we were lost, dead in our sins, we were children of wrath, he meant that was our destination. That was the path we were on. We were destined to be destroyed by God's wrath 
even as the rest. Now mark that in your Bible because a lot of people who grow up in Baptist church who are saved at a very young age as I was, after we've lived a few decades and, and we've lived life and we've been out in the world and we've seen the worst that the world has to offer, sometimes we start thinking we weren't nearly as lost as a lot of other people, right? It's easy to say that guy on death row, that dead man walking, he, he needs to be born again. And we start thinking that God really didn't have to exert much energy or effort to save us, right? That's not the case. Paul says we were as dead in sin as the worst criminal on death row. We were as in much rebellion as, as any person could possibly be. He says we were led around like a bull with a ring in his nose by the culture. And even though we might look good on the outside, the truth is we were like those Pharisees. We were full of dead men's bones, even as the rest. Now, we don't have time to go much farther today, but I, I cannot leave it there. Because I believe that verse 4 may be the most important verse in all the Bible. And I think the first word of verse 4 may be the most important word in all the Bible. It's a simple conjunction. Paul's laid out the case against us before we were saved. Dead in sins, rebels against God, led about by our own lust, walking in worldliness, children of wrath. And then he says this, but God. Aren't you grateful for that word? But God. We were hopeless and helpless in the world, every one of us, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. I hear people say all the time, just God loves you just like you are. That's not right. God loves you in spite of just like you are, okay? He doesn't love the fact that you're dead in sins. He doesn't love the fact that you're a, a wicked rebel by nature. He doesn't love the fact that you are neck deep in worldliness. He determined to set his affection upon you before the foundation of the world because that's who he is. God is love. And Paul is talking to Christians, dear ones. He says it's, it's when we look back on who we were, it ought to be a reason to give praise and glory to God because we were dead in sins and he loved us, he says, verse five, even when we were dead in sins. He didn't leave us in that condition, did he? He sent someone to tell us the gospel. And it was through that proclaimed message that the Holy Spirit used to make you spiritually alive. He breathed spiritual life into you through regeneration. And he gave you the faith to believe. And when you believed in him, he declared you justified and not guilty. And he didn't leave you there. He then adopted you into his forever family. He gave you the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And his desire is that you continue to grow in grace and in practical righteousness until he comes for you or he calls you home. What a glorious truth that is. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at some of the implications of the Lord's mercy and grace in our life. Until then, let's, uh, let's close our eyes and just thank the Lord for our salvation. I don't think we do that enough. We're quick to ask the Lord for favors. We're quick to uh, ask the Lord to remove any discomfort in our life. As we review the 
prayer life of the Apostle Paul, I said last week, he was constantly pausing to give thanks for his salvation. Heavenly Father, Lord, as I read this text today, I've read it probably hundreds of times in my life, but every time I do, every time I come to verse 4, I give you you praise because were it not for your mercy and not for your grace, I would still be in that condition of spiritual death, totally unresponsive to anything of spiritual significance. Lord, I'm reminded that even though that uh, you preserved me from some of the worst and most heinous sins through godly parents and uh, the fact that you saved me at a young age, my heart was was just as wicked and, and far from you as could possibly be. Father, that was uh, the condition of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room before we were saved. We were dead in sins. We were rebels against you. We were walking in worldliness, led about by our own lust, imprisoned to our own sin, subject to the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. But Lord, you did not leave us in that condition. You set your affection upon us. You saved us. You called us into life and we were born again. So Father, help us to now walk in righteousness. Help us to to love one another. Help us to share that good news message with our neighbors, our friends, and our family members who are still dead. Lord, I pray that it would be your will to call many to life, even this morning. Lord, I ask you to do it for your own namesake and for your own glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.